Christianity, we had the Good Friday service, Easter Sunday, and now we move in the final part of our series to look at the uh, Ascension. And so I, uh, I wonder, uh, if you switched on the TV recently, you've noticed on the news, uh, there's quite a lot about um, what ambassadors are saying, what representatives are saying. Mostly it feels like in the news over the last couple of weeks especially, certainly in the sort of the foreign uh, policy, the, the what's happening overseas part of the news, it's all been about what the Americans are saying. And looking at the situation on North Korea, and uh, uh, it's almost like there's been like a daily update. What are the people uh, with that authority? In America, what are they saying today? What have they tweeted today as they're traveling the world and talking to countries? What are they saying today? In our own nation, we uh, quite often, we are being told what has been said most recently by Boris Johnson as the, uh, as the sec- foreign secretary going to visit other countries and speaking on behalf of our nation. And the reason their words are really important, by the way, I realize people will have all sorts of uh, views about what that means for us as a country, but just put that to one side for a moment. We place huge importance on the words of these people. We know that the words of these people could affect our lives, could affect the future of our world. And why do we do that? We do that because of who they represent and because of the authority that they represent. So I just want to start with that thought. Who do you represent? What gives your words meaning? We are known as ambassadors or representatives of the ascended Christ. If that truth really permeated into our hearts and lives, how would that affect the way we view the meaning and purpose of our words and our prayers? That's kind of where we're headed this morning. Now, as we've been looking at Easter, I think if most of us said, you know, describe what happened at Easter, we would say, um, we would talk about the, uh, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And if we were thinking about it a little bit more widely, we would probably go on to uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the events that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And if you've got a background, maybe in a, a, a more traditional church, uh, words like Monday, Thursday, uh, and um, the week leading up to it, and Lent, and all of that sort of stuff would come into play. Not very often would we include the ascension of Jesus into our understanding of what happened at Easter. And yet it is completely within the same sweep of events. Just 40 days after Easter, we see the ascension 
of Jesus. Now, it's really impossible to uh, overstate the importance of Good Friday when Jesus died for our sins. And, and the most important day in the whole calendar, really, is Easter Sunday when we celebrate Jesus resurrected from the dead. There's a reason for that. But in our retelling of Easter, I think uh, what we're trying to say this morning is let's not finish the story there. Because Jesus' earthly ministry didn't stop there. I was thinking about this as well myself, and I was thinking, you know, I would consider myself to be uh, an evangelical Christian. And if someone came to me and they said to me, you know, what is your good news, Dave? What is your gospel? What is it all about? Uh, I would probably, you know, if you could explain it in a nutshell, you've got one sentence, what is your good news? And I'd think to myself, well, it would be that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. That, that, that is my good news in a nutshell. I wouldn't at that point mention that he also ascended to heaven. And that's where he now is. Yet in the Nicene Creed it says this. I think the words will come up behind me. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. So right the way through the history of the church, the creeds passed down generation to different generation, the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and that he ascended, and is now at the right hand of his Father. His ascension is part of his resurrection. Christ rising, if you like, didn't finish when he left the tomb. We know that he continued for 40 days uh, and then he ascended. And we're going to read the scripture in a minute. But I just, before we read it, I just want to bring something else out and just a reflection that I've been thinking about. In the whole of the Bible, there are something like 10 occasions where people are resurrected, where people who were dead come back to life. Elijah, Elisha, Peter and Paul all pray for people who are raised from the dead alongside Jesus. And Jesus himself has raised people from the dead, including Lazarus in a place called Bethany just outside Jerusalem. And that's happened recently. And that's why when uh, Jesus goes from Bethany back into Jerusalem riding on the donkey that we heard about a couple of weeks ago, that's one of the reasons why there were such massive crowds coming out because very recently in that place he had caused a resurrection. A dead person had come out of a tomb. So the people who've witnessed the resurrection of Jesus were not, it wasn't actually quite as out of place or odd as it would seem if someone in Shrewsbury tomorrow started claiming to have seen a resurrection. It sounds odd to be suggesting that, I'm not suggesting that sort of someone rising from the dead was sort of a, a run-of-the-mill daily experience in ancient Israel. I'm not saying that, but Lazarus had been raised nearby and would have still been alive at that time. The difference with Jesus as the events unfolded, and we'll find out especially today, is that every other person who was raised from the dead died. 
But with Jesus, it was different because he ascended. He never died. He ascended. And because he ascended, we know that he still lives. His ascension was part of his, the process of his resurrection that meant it was for all eternity. So, of course, the cross and the empty tomb are, 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 are vital right in the middle of our Christian message. But I think what we're saying is let's not have the ascension in our minds as a bit like, oh, yeah, and then a few days later this happened like some sort of appendix to the story, uh, neatly trying to tie up a few loose ends, a sort of a, a, a little afterthought, a little bonus to the story. It's got far, far more significance than that. And the gospel writer Luke, who was renowned as a historian, uh, carefully, he wanted to 100% make sure that, that people kept in mind the ascension when they remembered what had happened with Jesus. So we're going to start at the end of the book of Luke in chapter 24, and then we're going to go straight into the beginning of the book of Acts. So right at the end of the book of Luke, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. That's the end of his gospel. That's the end of his first book. And then he continues his account of what happened in the book of Acts. From chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, that we've just read the end of, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set down by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just picture this in your mind for a moment. Don't hear my words as such. Picture this. In your minds, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were, they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. I'm sure they were. And suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus spends 40 days after his resurrection uh, ministering and appearing to all sorts of different people at different times. And then he is taken up before 
their very eyes. And I think it's really interesting that Luke especially, the historian, wants this moment, wants the ascension of Jesus to be pivotal and to be key in people's thinking. So he finishes his gospel with that moment and he starts the account of what happened in the early church with that moment. If we could have the next slide. There were lots of people who witnessed Jesus resurrected, who were recorded by the gospel writers as eyewitnesses. The people, who they were, the place where they met Jesus, what happened when they met Jesus, it was all recorded. Some people have questioned whether this period of 40 days was uh, important or significant in some way. And uh, that's a really good question. There's lots of theories. Um, Certainly it gave Jesus lots of time to meet and to teach his followers. And uh, it did give him opportunity to meet and appear to lots of different people in lots of different places. If there was only one person who ever existed who claimed that they'd seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, then you might be able to say, well, you know, we think you've eaten some funny cheese or something. We can't really sort of take that uh, um, fully. But because it was so many people over such a period of time, it was convincing. Many convincing proofs is how Luke puts it. Imagine what it must have been like at those time, at that time. Someone bursts into the marketplace in the middle of your village. Have you heard what they're saying about Jesus? He was crucified in Jerusalem, but I've just heard a bloke in the next village say that Jesus is on the beach with his mates eating breakfast. The news would spread. Word of mouth. No social media in those days. No Facebook. No retweeting of the story. It's a bit of a shame, really, because the whole thing would be a lot easier to prove if Peter had just gone, Hey, Jesus, let's have a resurrection selfie. (laughs) And just sent that around the world. And then we'd all believe it, right? These reports of the eyewitnesses, written in many of their lifetimes, are the resurrection selfie of the apostles and the followers of Jesus. Forty days. At the start of his ministry, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Following his resurrection, he spends 40 days with his followers, parading his victory over sin and death. 40 days shows a completeness. It shows it's long enough to be a real thing. It's not just a flash in a pan. And Luke tells us that Jesus and his followers then come back out to Bethany. So they come back out to this place of one of Jesus' most amazing miracles, the resurrection 
of Lazarus, the place where he started his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Even the choosing of that place, I think, is significant because something amazing is going to happen, something way beyond the scope of our human experience, something completely and totally supernatural. They're gathered on the hillside, if we could just have those verses. And Jesus delivers his final message. And then he lifts his hands before them in blessing. I find that quite interesting as well. He lifts his hands before them in blessing. So the last thing they saw of Jesus was the scars on his hands and on his wrists. And then his body starts to rise supernaturally. And this is at the point that I can't do an impression of that. We haven't rigged it up with little uh, ropes and pulleys like the acrobats do or anything like that, I'm afraid. Sorry, you know, end of the month, the budget's narrowed. So uh, his body starts to rise supernaturally until the clouds take him out of their sight. It's just such an astonishing scene, such an incredible claim. And it's not surprising that his uh, departing was completely and totally supernatural if we consider uh, his birth and we consider his resurrection. There's kind of a theme here, right? And if the resurrection was about death in this world, then the ascension is a glimpse into the life to come. Putting it even more bluntly, if the cross was about the power of hell, then the ascension is about the power of heaven. When we heard uh, and we went through the account of what happened uh, last week in John 20, Mary Magdalene is talking in the garden. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I am ascending. That's the process he was on. So his ascending started with his resurrection, but it continued over 40 days to the events that we've just read about when Jesus was finally received into his Father's presence. And it's like the resurrection and the ascension are milestones in the same journey of Jesus being returned into the glory of God. And it's quite interesting because Luke's account puts us in the shoes of the disciples. We hear that they're looking and they're watching him and they're seeing him taken up. But when Mark takes up the story, he talks from the viewpoint of heaven almost. In Mark 16, verse 19, after the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. So we've heard about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but now we're hearing about the triumphal entry into heaven. A crown of thorns exchanged for a crown of glory. Many of us will have seen pictures Uh, on the news, or maybe you've even been yourself, when uh, sports figures return uh, from being away in an event where they've won something, and, uh, and they return, and they are received in glory. Now, as someone who uh, supports 
both the England football team and Shrewsbury Town. I haven't witnessed this uh, particularly often. I've seen it on the telly a little bit. I kind of wish I was German because they seem to do it every couple of years. But uh, we'll just lay that to one side. What about when someone wins an election? And then they come out to be greeted by ecstatic crowds. Now, I wrote that line before the announcements and the events of this week. So please don't get distracted uh, thinking about the election again. But the point is, at that moment when they announce the result, when it's finally known, the news crews arrive and people are received in glory. There is much celebration. There is much jubilation. But you know what? Those images we see on TV, the, uh, the big crowds, that has got absolutely nothing on this. There's not a shred of comparison between what we see in the human and what it must have been like when Jesus returned to heaven in triumph. Even those crowds you see where there's hundreds of thousands, even over a million people was it for Obama, it's got nothing on what it must have been like as Jesus returns to heaven. 1 Peter 3 verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Completely having finished the work that his father has given him to do, he's seated At his right hand. The work of salvation completely finished. A new age is dawning. The age of the spirit. Now Jesus is completely liberated. From all uh, limitations or restrictions of time and space. So Jesus is now freed to be lovingly and powerfully present. With every believer in every place. In every time through his Holy Spirit. And that leads me neatly into the sort of the heart of my message. Six points about what the ascension means for us today. We're just going to go through them one by one. The ascension means that Jesus is still working. Luke starts with, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Jesus had begun to do and teach, but he hadn't finished. Because if the first book is what Jesus began to do, then the second book, the Acts of the Apostles, is all Jesus continued to do even after he had ascended. The work that Jesus is still doing through his Holy Spirit from heaven. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it should really be the Acts of the risen and ascended Jesus through his Holy Spirit in the Apostles. But apparently that title wasn't very catchy, so uh, it got ruled out uh, in the early days. Everything that happens from that point on, everything that comes next, happens because Jesus has ascended. Everything that happens today, every work of God that happens today only happens because Jesus has ascended. And we've read that he promised to send his Holy Spirit. 
I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And, and on Pentecost, when Peter is explaining what's just happened to them, he says that it's Jesus at the right hand of God who sent the Holy Spirit to them. Instead of Jesus with them, limited at that time, a new era unfolds. The Holy Spirit with all believers for all time. Leading people into truth, empowering lives, revealing Jesus to people, helping make people more like Jesus in the way that they think and in the attitudes they have. And deep down, most of us who would say that we have a sort of an active faith in Jesus, you know, we would know that Jesus is real and we would know that the ascension happened because the Holy Spirit is in us. And when we read those words of scripture, it's like it comes alive. And it's more than just true in our heads. It's like an amazing truth. So because the ascended Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, we really want to value the Holy Spirit. We want to live lives that are full of the activity of the Holy Spirit. We want meetings that are full of the activity of the Holy Spirit. We want the word to come alive in the life of our church because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we place such uh, importance on that is because that's why the ascended Jesus sent him. That's why the ascended Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower the believers and to empower his church. I think it's quite interesting at this point because the disciples asked Jesus in Luke's account at the beginning of Acts that we read, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to now overthrow the Romans? And I think it's quite interesting because after everything they've seen and heard of Jesus, they're still looking for man's solution to man's problems. They're still looking for man's solution to man's problems. Whereas Jesus says, I will send my spirit. Now that makes me think, how often do I come to God in prayer wanting man's solutions to man's problems? Instead of coming to God in prayer and waiting for the Holy Spirit and waiting to be clothed with power from on high to face those circumstances. So we continue to be absolutely committed as a church family to make time and space for spiritual gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit within our meetings. We've seen that this morning in a great way. I had no idea what was going to happen, but the tongue and interpretation and spiritual gifts and gifts of discernment and all testimony and all the different things coming together because the Holy Spirit works and builds us up and stirs us as a church. And sometimes we just need to kind of leave some space like we did today so that God could speak, so that things could happen. The ascension of Jesus also shows us that he's the king. He was installed as the true king of the world. Jesus has authority because he's now sat on the throne. 
In Revelation 3, Jesus is speaking to one of the churches and he says this. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And I think sometimes that the media in our country want to typecast Jesus as a kind of chilled out hippie character in ancient times who talked a lot about love and who gives us some philosophy about sharing. And, you know, there's some truth in that, but the Bible tells us that now Jesus is a king on a throne in the position of all authority, and his kingdom cannot be destroyed, and it will not pass away. Remember where we started. If Jesus is a king on a throne... And we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. That's quite a big deal, right? I wonder how my own life might change if I lived it not in the limitations of my own faith, but in the fullness of his authority. Do we approach our circumstances in his supernatural authority? When we pray, are we asking a Jewish hippie if he's got enough time to do us a favor? Or are we speaking to our circumstances as ambassadors and representatives with the authority of the High King of Heaven? As we pray, as we consider Jesus, what comes to mind? He's seated on a throne, the high king of heaven. If he's not there as we pray or consider him, are we missing out on something? Just a couple more points now. He's with his father. Before and after his resurrection, Jesus said that he's come from his father and he's going to go back to his father he'd already said that to mary i'm ascending to my father and your father my god and your god in john 16 he says i've come from the father and have come into the world and now i'm leaving the world and going to the father my father and your father we can approach god because jesus is with him because he's made a way to him And we can experience that love of God as Father and that knowing that we're adopted by him because Jesus is with him. And so as Christians, when we teach on God the Father and we invite people to embrace their identity as children of God, the reason we do that is because Jesus has gone ahead of us. That's why he came, to draw us back to our heavenly father he came from the father to help lift us to the father as it were and as that happens we're going to be sure that the holy spirit's going to move and people will have amazing revelations of who god is because jesus is there now he's sending his holy spirit in the presence of god the father to us and that's why when we experience the holy spirit we can have amazing experience of god Because that's where it's coming from, if you see what I mean. I know theologically that might have been a little bit clumsy. But Jesus himself is with God the Father, sending his spirit to us.
Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding for us. We've just talked about where he is, but what's he actually doing? What do you do when you finish a, uh, a hard day's work? What do you do when you uh, are really successful in something that you do in life? Different personalities go about it different ways. I'd probably start off with making myself a, uh, a brew and sitting down and watching a bit of telly maybe. Relax. Some people go long and they go celebrating and it's cigars and pina coladas and stuff like that. Celebrating this great victory. That's not a pastoral recommendation, by the way. It's just a suggestion of how it gets played sometime. On completing his work and being received into glory, Jesus, our Jesus, is now in heaven praying and interceding for his people. Romans 8.34. By the way, his people, that means us. That means you. He is currently talking to Father about you. He's asking Father about you. During his earthly ministry, he was limited geographically. Jesus didn't teach in Ethiopia. He didn't heal people in China. He didn't offer salvation to people in England. But now, he's at work everywhere and in every circumstance through his Holy Spirit. And as we pray, he's praying too. He's praying too. And finally, he's coming back. I know you've been waiting for me to get to this bit. (laughs) This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The astonishing hope of the Christian faith. That Jesus' heavenly reign that he now experiences will one day be fully realized on earth. He's coming back. And I think there's a slight danger here because this sort of truth and a discussion around it has been hijacked by lots of people. And people have got all sorts of theories and complicated structures about and speculation really about where he's going to come and what's he going to do and how's it all going to pan out and all that sort of stuff and there's been lots of disagreement in the church about these things that we all have a different speculation about what may or may not happen i want to settle all that this morning once and for all the truth is this he is coming back As he went, he is coming back. And when that happens, all of the pain, disappointment, the difficulties, the injustice, all of it is going to get sorted out. The high king of heaven is not indifferent to the difficulties in our world. He is coming back to fix them once and for all. And we know that. We know that because he ascended. And as he ascended, 
So he is coming back. So what is the destiny of our world? Who's going to decide the destiny of humanity? Is it Mr. Trump and the big red button somewhere in Washington? Is it, is it North Korea? Or any of the crisis that each generation faces? Go back 10 years and those names, those people, it could be anyone else. Because every generation has its own crisis, yeah? Is it going to be any of those things? No. What will dictate the destiny of the world is that Jesus is coming back. Everything else will fade. All the powers and the economies and the political system and the military powers, everything will rise and fall. What will dictate the destiny of this world is that Jesus is coming back. And there's no other religion or worldview or way of viewing the future that comes remotely close to giving us such hope as we get from the fact that Jesus is coming back. So I put it to you this morning that the ascension is absolutely vital in the Easter story because it's, it's his process of ascending from the grave to earth again, as it were, and then to heaven, conquering everything on the way. And it gives us hope today because he's still working. He sent his Holy Spirit. He's the king. He's with his father. He's praying for us, and he's coming back. I'd love to invite the band to come forward. I'd love to uh, finish with uh, an amazing song full of truth about uh, us looking forward to the return of Jesus. I'd love us to stand together, and I'd like to pray. And as we sing this song, I'd like to speak specifically to two types of people, and then for uh, our worship to be our way of responding. I'd like to speak to people who've lost a bit of hope. We heard earlier during the worship about uh, people being thrown a lifeline. The ascended Jesus wants to send his Holy Spirit to you today as a comforter. Rule and authority over your circumstances, and he's coming back to sort everything out. And I believe there's an opportunity for us this morning as we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit once more to be almost like recommissioned as ambassadors of the resurrected and ascended Christ. That actually there's an anointing from heaven by the Holy Spirit this morning because that's where Jesus is for us to be able to live our lives as representatives, as ambassadors for Jesus who sits at the right hand of his Father until he comes again. I'd love to just pray. Father, I want to thank you for the great truth that your son Jesus was received in glory in heaven because his work on earth was finished, his salvation work. And I want to thank you that he's coming back again. 
And I want to thank you that in between, from his position of authority and power, he prays for us and sends his Holy Spirit to us. And I want to pray that this great truth would not be limited to the men of Galilee on that hillside in that day, but would come alive in our hearts in a new and fresh way and bring us restoration and hope and fill us with faith. That this verse that I'm about to read, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, cause it to just come alive in our hearts and be something that actually starts to shape our future. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen.